The massacre of Mosul, nothing can stop it. Where next for the Islamist extremists forced out of Iraq? And lessons learned from forces medics in Afghanistan. We're learning things every day that we learned in Afghanistan and that we learned in the military wards that people came back to once they came home. The slaughter of the innocents of Mosul is about to begin. Tens of thousands of civilians are trapped in the oldest part of the city, unable to escape the final stages of the fighting. The United Nations says it's received credible reports suggesting more than 230 civilians trying to flee western Mosul have been killed by Islamic State in under a fortnight. Sky News chief correspondent Stuart Ramsey has been to the front line. Earlier today, he spoke to SITREP's editor, Josella Waldron, on satellite phone from Erbil. Well, at the moment, it is without doubt a humanitarian crisis. I'm really beginning to think that this is about to turn into a humanitarian disaster the like of which we haven't seen, I mean, I can't even remember. If we say, if it's difficult to know how many people are still inside the old city uh, of Mosul. I think if anyone has ever been on holiday to, say, France or Spain and they've seen medieval cities, you can imagine those streets. That's just what it's like. It's just bigger. And they are absolutely tiny and there's potential for hundreds of thousands of people to live there. And we don't know how many have got out, but we, we understand from people who are coming out that it is still pretty packed. Islamic State have made it clear to all of them who are in there that if they try to leave, they will shoot them, they've closed roads down. We've seen pictures of dozens and dozens of bodies just lying where they've been shot by Islamic State. The forces outside the city have been trying to create corridors to bring people through, but people have been killed in those corridors and they're accepting it's not really working and that the best thing they can plan to do is to try to to invade into the old city once they've cleared the final northern area just above the old city called San Juli. The problem is if they can't get people out and they go in, they they can't all die, but we could be talking huge numbers. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people could die. That attack is meant to start next week. And if it's only 10% of 100,000 people, you know, the figures are quite astonishing. And I, I don't think we've all thought about this beforehand. We've, there's been all of the um, NGOs, the United Nations, everyone's talked about the concerns. But I, we're now actually at that point. This is it. They can't get out and the soldiers have to go in. And I, I, I fear as to what will happen because there appears to be no way of a negotiation that would allow people to find safety because Islamic State do not want that to happen. They want them to be, as as they would see it, martyred uh, as Sunnis attacked by the foreigners, by the West, etc., and by Shia and everything, so that ISIS builds its position of the protectors. So they won't let them go. If the soldiers go in, it it will be absolute carnage. And there is nothing we can think of, any possibility of a ceasefire, or, or an acceptance that people should leave. There, there is no room for that. And this it's absolutely quite astonishing. And I don't see any way out of it. Have you managed to speak to anyone from the humanitarian organisations? I know you're out in Erbil at the moment. Yeah, we speak to them all the time, and we speak to them when we go to Mosul itself. They've been warning of this. They knew it was possible. I think they rather hoped that it wouldn't happen. 
but it appears that it has happened. You know, what was successful in the East was that people were told to stay where they were. It's a very, very different environment, and people were actually able to leave or were able to survive by staying in their houses and hiding. But it's a completely different situation in the old city because you know, it's big, but it's not that big. It's probably a couple of miles wide and sort of three or four, maybe not even uh, long. But th- they can't move without being in sight of Islamic State. Now, we believe that the Islamic State fighters are now grouped. Are in, we don't even know how many numbers there are, but it's, it seems to be many hundreds are working in smaller cells not necessarily with a command and control structure anymore, but just literally fighting, because they know, you know there's no way out for them. Um, and as a result, there's no specific area where they are, and wherever they are, if people walk past them, they're shooting. What sort of fighters are left? Who are these people that are still there? It appears that most of them, most of them are foreign fighters, it seems. The um, soldier I was talking to yesterday was saying that he heard a lot of Russian... Uh, being spoken, he described it as Russian. We don't know what it is. It could be Chechen. It could be, you know, whatever. But they seem to be foreign fighters, absolutely determined to continue fighting. They are literally streets from one another. Uh, but as it stands now, the Iraqi uh, security forces—it's made up of army and police, etc.—aren't moving in because I suspect a they're not absolutely certain how they're going to do it, um, and b uh, they are actively trying to get people out, knowing how bad it is. That was Sky News Chief Correspondent Stuart Ramsey speaking from Erdbill. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio. This has long been the worry about Mosul. This is it, as Stuart said. What happens at the end? This is how it started, and this is how it looks to be finishing. Uh, just think of Mosul. On one side, the eastern side, it's pretty easy to get in and out. Here, you're now in the old town, and the old town in this European style, and much of it was built as European style, alleyways, small twitterns, etc. Sum it up in these lines. You cannot move in that old part of the city. You cannot move from one alleyway or street without being seen. You can't, there's nowhere to hide. You can't move. Um, these people, the IS, are operating in small cells. They have a sense of being abandoned by if you like, the hierarchy, uh, with the instructions, prepare to defend yourselves. In other words, you are probably going to die as a result of this and you won't want to be taken prisoner. The other part of it is we've got the uh, Iraqi security forces who have never been up to this job and even with American uh, resources as advisors, etc., there is no way you have this experience of street fighting at this level except for the Americans still live with the ghost of the fighting in Iraq in Fallujah. You say never been up to this job, the Iraqi forces, then what? That is the problem. And there are not many forces that would be up to this job of actually having to go into an old town, which you can't, you know, you've got nowhere to hide, you can't have a block plan because you don't know what's going to happen when you actually get into there. And so this is something which everybody's been waiting for, and now it's happening. If you, if you went in almost any other part of this long engagement against IS, you wouldn't find a situation like this. If you were to compare what's happening, these efforts in Mosul, to the efforts to rout IS from Raqqa in Syria, what kind of comparison, if any, can you make? Well, first and foremost, Mosul is is the tidying up job of the war in Iraq. That's the, you know, drive IS away from Iraq. That's Mosul's job. Raqqa, for example, is part of a greater war. 
a greater war which is yet to be done, whereas Iraq is a war that is done and now you've got to tidy up. And that is the big difference. And the other thing about Iraq is that it is uh, it is the home or the fighting home of far more groups. Mm. So it's a quite a separate operation. Well, as Stuart Ramsey was saying there from Iraq, it could be only foreign fighters left in the former stronghold of the caliphate. So what's happened to the dreams of the caliphate and the men who said it would come to pass? Well, let's talk now to Dr Rohan Gunnar Ratner from the International Centre for Political Violence and Terrorism Research at Nanyang University in Singapore. Good to speak to you today. Where is the leadership of IS now? IS leadership is located in Syria. Our own assessment is that IS leadership will survive as long as there is no strong ground domination and control. And as long as the civil war exists in Syria, IS will survive. And how far spread is IS as far as the Philippines? IS battle space is shrinking in Iraq and Syria. Although it has suffered significant losses in its heartland, it has expanded globally in parts of Asia, Africa, Middle East and the Caucasus. IS will continue to grow in physical space and also in cyberspace. There needs to be greater cooperation and commitment on the part of governments so that they can fight the threat both at an operational and ideological level. And where does IS actually stand in terms of its ideology at the moment? Have they abandoned the idea of a Middle East caliphate? Certainly not all IS messages refer to the caliphate. And in fact, the most recent victory IS achieved was in Marawi, when groups associated with IS, groups that have pledged allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, they overran a city and took control of Marawi. Now, of course, the Filipino security forces are waging a relentless fight to take control of the city. Yeah, it's now more than two weeks and they are still unable to control the city. Looking forward, what do you think uh, the biggest threat is going to be posed by IS and where do you think their greatest influence will be? IS global expansion is inevitable. I, many groups around the world have pledged allegiance to IS and the only way to defeat IS as it moves from Jihad 2.0 to Global Jihad uh, 3.0, what we are seeing is that IS is expanding and enlisting so many groups in different regions of the world. So it requires more governments to counter the IS ideology. In your... In uh, excuse me for interrupting you, but in your experience, which country is getting it right, has the best attitude towards tackling IS, and what are they doing? We do not have one single country that has been successful. Different countries have different strengths. For example, Singapore's greatest strength is it has a very effective terrorist rehabilitation program and a community engagement program to work very closely with the different communities. Uh, certain countries have developed very high-quality, high-grade intelligence capabilities to detect IS. 
So it very much depends on the governments that we are speaking of, about. So you need military, law enforcement, national security, and what you call community engagement capabilities to fight IS. And most recently, you need cyber capabilities because IS is growing very rapidly in cyberspace. All right, Dr. Rohan Gunaratna, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. The bigger story in the Middle East today is the breaking of diplomatic relations between Qatar and its former allies, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE and Kuwait. The reason for the breakup and the cancellation of flights to Qatar is the accusation that Qatar is financing IS and other terrorist groups. Well, Michael Stathis is Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Utah and is on the line now. Hello, Michael. Um, President Trump says this is a good idea and he's responsible for it following his visit to the Middle East recently. Has nobody told him that America has 10,000 troops in Qatar? Well, we've taken a complex situation in the Persian Gulf, a situation that has been complex for uh, the better part of the last 30 years, and we've added a completely new level of complexity to it. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, uh, Qatar, or at least Certain wealthy families in Qatar um, have been funneling money to certain uh, organizations, including Hamas, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, and uh, ISIS, uh, uh, ISIS Daesh. Now, uh, how culpable the government of Qatar uh, has been, uh, of course, is not uh, particularly clear, although they have allowed uh, Hamas uh, to um, house its leadership in the country, and uh, they have uh, served as um, uh, a getaway, if you will, uh, for uh, members of other terrorist groups when they've been forced out of, uh, of, of other countries. Uh, the timing is interesting, coming on the heels of Trump's visit to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and somebody might want to um, uh, uh, <laughs> give uh, the president uh, a, a quick reminder that there are 10,000 American troops there, uh, that the United States has had a, a long-standing agreement with Qatar, and Qatar has been absolutely vital to American actions in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq and uh, in Syria, um, which uh, makes this for a very sticky situation. Mm. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is still here. Uh, Christopher, how do you see this? Those 10,000 troops in Qatar, are they likely to be affected at all by this breakdown in diplomatic relations between mm. allies of Qatar? Uh, I don't think it'll be affected because I think there will be some way around this, you know, and you pull off the diplomatic relations and you get it back at where it was. We were here in 2014, by the way. But if you look at what's happening in that whole area, uh, I'm based partly on al Odiyad, uh, which is the uh, yeah, American base. Air Force mm -hmm. base there. Um, you find that you've got what that together what's with, with the American operation in Saudi Arabia and also in Bahrain, where the Royal Navy's got its new... Uh, uh, a naval base there, you have the biggest operational out-of-area uh, uh, base and configuration grouping, i.e. a big fleet, uh, big soldiers, uh, or lots of soldiers, and also air forces, outside continental United States. Now, that's quite a powerful uh, sort of uh, image, especially when you start including what's going on in Europe, what's going on in the Far East, etc. So it ain't going to be allowed to sort of continue that way. Now, then we get into the complication. The Turks are talking about, send, uh, Turks are talking about sending uh, troops down there. 
Now, if Turkey starts to send troops down there, that is going to muddle the whole thing considerably. Mm. After all, the Turks have got enough problems they've got at home. Now, uh, Mr Putin, President Putin, he's saying, now, if you need any help, I'll go mm. down there and I'll sort it out. Well, uh, uh, President Trump will not like the idea, especially in the certain circumstances that are going on the moment with President Trump's arrangements with uh, Russia, perhaps, uh, of the Russians actually going down to uh, down to Qatar, trying to sort out that problem for everybody else. While, if you remember the story, uh, nobody could sort out what was going on in Syria. The Russians turned up and said, "Well, look, we've helped." Mm, Michael Stathis, uh, what do you think of the timing of this? Well, it, uh, like I said, it comes on the heels of um, uh, Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia, but uh, it comes on the heels of an Iranian election. Um, and uh, 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 this is a key time in the conflict with uh, ISIS Daesh. Uh, earlier comments were made that uh, Mos- uh, uh, Mosul is on the uh, verge of, uh, of falling. There is great pressure on uh, al Raqqa. Um, uh, things were looking a little bit better there. Now, the possibility of other countries taking advantage of uh, this split in the GCC uh, in the Persian Gulf um, um, are very, very worrisome. Um, Putin is always looking for an opportunity to uh, involve the Russian Federation and make it look like a major player. Um, and uh, certainly Iran uh, is going to attempt to finagle a way to take advantage of this in some way. Although, of course, uh, Qatar and Iran, uh, the religious differences, of course, prevent any long-term uh, association. But um, the door has suddenly been flung open here for all kinds of uh, uh, situations that uh, really nobody saw coming uh, uh, two months ago. Christopher Lee. Listen, I, I saw the United Arab Emirates um, uh, Foreign Minister, uh, Amal Gagash, the other day. He was really anticipating this was going to happen. And then he expanded it. And he said, well, I also think what's happening, Qatar has got this arrangement with the Iranians. Therefore, you get the Iranians and Qataris involved in what's going on in Syria. Uh, then you come back to the basics. Now, why would uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar be at loggerheads? And that's partly because that's, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran... Uh, has at the moment uh, a, a proxy war going on. Um, now, the next thing comes up uh, is the attack in the last 48 hours in Iran itself uh, and in the capital, which nobody has seen. Which an ISIS claimed like responsibility which for. Which ISIS claimed responsibility mm. for. The Iranians saying that, that was all down to the, uh, the, the Saudis. Another lot of the Iranians saying that the Americans, therefore, are behind that. The Middle East is in a bit of a muddle at the moment, and we've just got to hold tight because it'll sort. It always does. Sit rep. Still to come, the military medicine developed in Afghanistan, saving the lives of ordinary people in Britain. When you see blood on an ambulance going out to a civilian disaster, we learned in Afghanistan that the further forward we can take blood, the more lives we'll save more efficiently and more quickly. BFBS Sit rep. Well, Donald Trump has appointed a new director of the FBI. He is a lawyer called Christopher Wray. Um, Michael Stathis is still with us. A great coincidence, this. Donald Trump announces the new man as the former director appears before the Senate Intelligence Committee to give evidence about Mr Trump's behaviour. <laughs> I'm going to be very cynical here. Uh, which is no surprise uh, to uh, <laughs> it's our It's what listeners. we're here for, isn't but, it? But... Uh, 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 President Trump is trying to pull a fast one. 
Uh, he, I don't think that uh, he's all that invested uh, in Christopher Ray. Although I think this fellow is uh, uh, probably uh, fairly capable to take the post of director of the FBI. But um, uh, he's trying to take attention away uh, from uh, the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee uh, meetings uh, this week and to uh, change the, uh, the headlines. Mm. It's not working. Um, uh, in fact, uh, we're not seeing very much uh, a play on the Christopher Ray appointment uh, uh, at all. Of course, uh, not the enough big of a news, showboat, is he not? I think exactly. Uh, uh, the big news, of course, has been um, uh, the um, uh, appearance of the acting. Uh, uh, director of National Intelligence, uh, the Deputy um, uh, Attorney General, uh, and of course um, uh, today uh, uh, we note that uh, of, of course James Comey is going to give his full testimony. And um, uh, this week uh, we've heard testimony from uh, uh, well, it's it, it's 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 going to be some of the major uh, potential players in uh, you know this whole investigation concerning uh, uh, the Trump campaign, the Trump administration, and the Iraq. So, and today, this is Michael, the I headline want, story. Michael, Michael, I want to do the movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would tell you that this, this I'm sure th- you're not the only one. This whole thing that's going on at the moment, I mean, it, it, the president's got, um, uh, is going to be asked, or indirectly, because it'll become public, what is asked. Not so much in the Senate hearing this afternoon, but later on tonight, uh, when, they, when they meet in camera, and so the private questions. Did Mr. Trump tell the uh, then director of FBI, lay off Michael Finn, uh, the NSA uh, boss. Uh, did he demand a declaration of uh, loyalty? Um, and did the, uh, Comey, Mr. James Comey, tell the, uh, the president, "No, no, 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 you're not giving, you're not being investigated, etc." Mm. This is not going away, and it's never going away. Are we, we ever going to know the real truth? Do you think we will know the truth when I do the film? But um, <laughs> no, but it, seriously, it's getting to that sort of show business standard. And one of the one of the difficult it got there a while ago, I think. Yeah, we. Have haven't seen anything yet, as Mr. Reagan might have said one day. Mm. But listen, the, the point now is we've got to ask the bigger questions. We spend a lot of time, especially in Europe, saying, you know, what are Mr. Trump up to? What is this? Aren't you ashamed, etc.? We are getting to a point when we're starting to think already about the next presidential rounds. And I think that we then start asking this question, uh, what did America do to elect Mr. Trump, what made them do it? What about American society? Because very, very shortly, we're going to ask them to do it again. And that will be a conversation for another day. Uh, Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science at University of Southern Utah, thank you for your time today. Now, military medicine saw major advances during the war in Afghanistan. A new book documents how servicemen and women survived IED blasts and how that knowledge has been transferred into the NHS, allowing civilians to survive traumatic injuries from car crashes and even terrorist attacks. Grace Pascoe reports. The unexpected survivors. That's what military veterans who suffered traumatic, life-changing injuries in IED blasts in Afghanistan are being called in a new book. The author of A Heavy Reckoning is Dr Emily Mayhew. We're learning things every day that we learned in Afghanistan and that we learned in the military wards that people came back to once they came home. We learn from the unexpected survivors every day. We learn some kind of basic things. Every time you see blood, 
somewhere that isn't an A&E department, when you see it in a helicopter, in a HEMS, in, a, in, a, in an emergency helicopter, landing at a civilian disaster, when you see blood on an ambulance going out to a civilian disaster. We learned in Afghanistan that the further forward we can take blood, the more lives we'll save, more efficiently and more quickly. So that's one really solid thing. But we've also learned some things that are slightly less tangible. We've learned how to organise mass casualty events. So I saw a, a consultant talking about how there'd been 16 patients admitted to his critical care ward in Manchester all in one go. That's a very large amount of people. But we know how to do that now. We know how to administrate that. Medical advances and techniques learned on Afghan battlefields are helping victims of traumatic injuries in UK hospitals. Shihan Hetarachi is a British Army reservist who deployed twice to Afghanistan as a trauma surgeon. He works for Imperial College London's NHS Trust. We obviously get a lot of civilian trauma. And given the recent events in Manchester, that can sometimes include military-style injuries. We're standing here in our trauma theatre. This is designed around principles learned from Afghanistan. The protocols we use were developed from ones learned in Afghanistan. The people we use were people who have had experience in Afghanistan. So I think the legacy from that medical experience in Afghanistan is very much being used on a daily basis in the NHS to treat civilian patients. Surviving traumatic injuries, though, is just part of the story. As Sheehan explains, a deal is done when saving people from these injuries. When you pull somebody back from, in some cases, technically being dead, um, we do things to their body, and their body goes through a lot of change that we don't fully understand. Because, you know, we've, no one's ever done this before, no one's ever survived these kind of injuries before. So I think there is a deal there, and we don't know what, what the price is that has been paid. Hence the focus now on seeing how these survivors progress, what kind of issues they have, what we can do to understand those issues and, and help. And Emily Mayhew says this is a new normal for survivors. She says we need to understand what surviving these injuries really means. What does it mean in 10, 15, 25 years for people who've been brought back so far from the point of death that it was previously unimaginable. Not just unprepared for, but unimaginable. There is some scientific research that came out in 2015, so it's not really very historical, but I'm a historian, that says these people are changed in really complicated physiological ways. Ways that are probably not gonna make themselves felt for the next decade, but after that, they will. The indications are, for reasons we don't quite yet understand, we've got some good ideas but we don't understand, that people are going to age much more quickly. They're going to have physiological complications. So this is not a matter for a surgeon, it's going to be a matter for a physiologist and it's going to be a matter for a scientist. Both Sheehan and Emily have helped to set up NHS England's new Veterans Trauma Network. It allows veterans to be referred by their GP straight to a specialist trauma centre for blast victims. And it's a service they may well need for the rest of their lives. Grace Pascoe reporting there. It's quite fascinating, isn't it, Christopher, that the point that was being made there, when you get that close to death and yet you survive the physiological impact that that might have long term. Yeah, very, 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 very long term. I've just been talking last week to somebody who uh, pioneered brain surgery in Northern Ireland during the Troubles uh, from a result of a sort of um, in, uh, uh, shooting. 
he, I say to him, look, you know, yet another report. We're getting reports all the time. He says, we've got thousands of reports to go through yet. The things that we don't actually know, we can look at the big cases, the big issues, but there are things that we piece together and we start to get something quite different. He said, for example, guy's just lost two legs. He's lying there. He hears the helicopter. That rattle of the helicopter, he said, is the bit that could actually get him to make it because he believes that once he hears that helicopter one day very soon like the next day he'll be in Birmingham and they'll be working on him and these are sort of uh, elements which you hear in that in that piece just now that we still don't understand. Mm, it's fascinating. Um, to lighten things up a little bit, uh, trooping the colour happens three times in June and Saturday is uh, the Colonel's trooping. Yeah what happens is if, trooping the colour is the Queen's birthday. Uh, established in 1748 by the king, then King George. And they said, look, king, we want to... The people do like you. We're going to have a birthday parade for you. He said, not in November, you're not, squire. Uh, let's have it in the summer when all people can come out. This is, it is, go- what we're is it going now. on as usual? It's going on as usual. You, What you have on the 3rd of June, that was last Saturday, you have the Major General's Review. Who's, that's the Major General who commands the household uh, division, seven regiments of it. Um, then uh, this Saturday, you've got the Colonels, which is the most important of the rehearsals because you've got to get it right because next week on the 17th the queen comes and it's it's the it it's it's her review 1400 guys 200 mm. horses like that likes horses <laughs> you like that yeah. um 400 musicians do you know in that whole parade as i say 2000 uh, 1400 guys all together and all those troops and things 100 words only 100 words of command are spoken mm. that's all something to learn for you there <laughs> <laughs> you never stop learning, do you? That's all we have time for today. Oh, yes, Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. You can never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. I'll be back the same time next week. Our thanks to all of our guests. So from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.